Good afternoon. Welcome to Business Buzz. This is Harold Littlejohn, CPA. I'll be your host for the next hour of entertainment, interesting factoids about business, some interesting articles. I've even got some from the archives. We're going to delve into all kinds of interesting topics. So sit back and relax. Grab that cold drink or that iced tea or that iced coffee and Enjoy the afternoon with me. I'm always glad to be here. I'm glad you have time to spend a little time with me. I like to keep you posted on all the latest business things. Being a CPA, a big part of my business has to do with the new income tax law. It's been really interesting. Today I saw a lot of people and it's like a double duty this year because because not only are we doing the normal things of calculating what the income might be and then what the tax prepayment should be, but in addition, we have to do the additional twist of we have the new tax law to contend with so that the normal calculation that I do to figure 2017 or earlier taxes, it all has to be now interpolated under the new tax law. So everything's different. It's almost like double work, but... I still offer a free initial consultation, so any new client coming to me, uh, I'll talk to them for free, and like I say, there's a lot of good tax preparers in Chico. I think I'm one of them, and if you need help with a question or just want a free consult with a tax person who's been doing it for years and years, call my office, 895-3353. I may not be there when you call because I'm here at KKXX, enjoying myself, and during the summer, my help does leave before five sometimes, but I'm really glad you're here today. I'm going to start off, I like to start off local and then spread out to the entire universe. So the first thing I wanted to discuss is it's a local business matter because I was going to talk about this latest sit-and-lie ordinance situation that the city council has had. And I'm just now reading an article about it in the News and Review, and it sounds like clapping and whooping interruptions, pounding the gavel. Sorry, I'm not that prepared on this. I just wanted to make my comments on this whole topic. I am not, I'm not politically oriented to have any kind of blanket opinion on this, but I do feel for businesses because when people are allowed to uh, lay and sleep on your property, it does become a little bothersome. I have been working on mangrove for quite a few years. There's been many, many times, and I would say especially so in the last year or two, where I have to ask people to leave because they're sleeping on the porch. I'm not going to get political on this, but I'm just curious what what the feeling is for how you how do you humanely help people who have nowhere to sleep? It's just a really tough question. I'm like I say I I don't want to turn political on something as important as personal homelessness and poverty and all that. But I do feel, I feel like, I feel like Chico needs to figure out some sort of solution 
to this problem, and I just can't believe it's become that divisive with this uh, protests at a meeting and all that. I know they had protests. They had protests at the U.S. Congress yesterday for the confirmation of Justice Kavanaugh, and whether that's really a direct business topic, I'm not sure. But I do know that it's likely, in my opinion, that the Democrat side doesn't have much to worry about with Kavanaugh being in there, but that's just my opinion. I don't believe this is a... I don't believe it's a true right-wing conservative judge, put it that way. If you look back at Kavanaugh's employment record, you'll see that, well, he was in the middle of quite a few interesting cases in the 80s, I'll just put it that way. And if you look that up, you'll probably agree with me. I won't get political on that one either, because that would be the business of the Supreme Court, and I... I try not to go that far. I'm not an attorney. I don't play one on television. I do have a law degree, but uh, that and a quarter will get you a cup of coffee because until you decide to study a lot for the bar and pass it, you're not able to practice as an attorney. You can learn enough law getting a law degree, though, just to, to advance your knowledge in a lot of fields. So that's why I did it, and it's been a it's been a real good thing. I'm uh, I'm... I'm very able to at least tell people what they need to learn, if they need an attorney or not, what type of attorney they need. It's helped me a lot to be able to really know just how f- how much I do know, how much I don't know, but I'm still able to help my clients a lot by having that law degree because it just it settles so many things. It's interesting because as soon as you start doing income taxes and you ha- you start doing corporation and especially uh, trusts and estate income tax, you have to almost work hand-in-hand with the family's attorney to get everything lined up just right to make sure that the trust or the estate pays as little as possible in income tax. Yes, trusts and estates pay tax also, and sometimes it can really be bad. The tax rates for trusts and estates is actually higher than it is for individuals or corporations. Even when corporations had a higher tax rate, which they've been lowered now, with the new tax law, even at that point, the trust tax rate was the highest of all. So it's very important if you're looking at setting up a revocable trust or if you're planning for your passing and what's going to happen to your assets when you die, it's very important to set these trust things up correctly so that your beneficiaries don't have tax trouble down the road. One of the biggest mistakes I've seen now, this is not tax advice, it's not legal advice, it's not financial advice, it's entertainment. One of the biggest problems I've seen is when the beneficiary of an IRA or a retirement account like a 401k, the person who dies, you don't leave your IRA in a will. You leave it through the IRA itself and you name a beneficiary. One of the biggest mistakes I've seen, but it's not necessarily a mistake for everyone. There could be tax planning reasons for this, but when I see this, I know it's going to be a little bit of a problem. One of the bigger mistakes I see that is very common, it occurs when the beneficiary 
of an IRA or a retirement plan is named as the trust itself as the beneficiary. That leads to a lot more paperwork and trouble and possible tax problems than if the beneficiaries themselves had been listed on the IRA to bypass the trust completely. In other words, let's say you have a IRA with $100,000 in it and you have three children and you want to leave it to them equally anyway. If you make the beneficiaries of the trust, the three children, one-third, 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 then as soon as you pass away, of course, after they send in all the paperwork and sign all the forms, they directly inherit your one-third of that IRA. The beneficiary can have tax trouble of their own with IRA income, but the point is is that the transfer to the intended beneficiary is fast, it gives them more options tax-wise, and it can really save them money in the, in the tax department. Here's the mistake. If you mistakenly list your revocable living trust as the beneficiary, when the IRA empties out to the beneficiary, which it is required to do, now the trust just received $100,000 of taxable income. Now there's an issue of getting that income out timely to the three beneficiaries that would have gotten it directly anyway if it had been done the first way I mentioned. Now we have a trust sitting there with 100000 of income, and if for some reason the trust doesn't do things right and doesn't get it all distributed out correctly in time, that trust could end up with a tax rate of like 30 to 40% federal tax on the 100,000. That would be a disaster if the trust were to lose 100 were to lose 30 or 40,000 on 100 when all it would have taken to make it work out right would have been for the person setting up the trust and setting up the beneficiary list on the IRA itself if they had to listen to business buzz today, they would have been aware that they should just if they want that money to go to the three children equally Just leave it to the three children equally in the IRA. Same goes for these things called annuities. You may own what's called an annuity where you let's say you put $50,000 in 10 years ago and now it's worth $80,000. Well, 30 of the 80 is income because 50 is the money you put in, but you're going to get 80. So 30 is like stored up income that's taxable. Same thing as the IRA. If you want that annuity to go one-third to each of your three kids, just put their names as beneficiary of the annuity. It completely skips over this whole trust thing. If you don't do it, then the trust is sitting there with another 30000 of income. And unless it gets done correctly, the trust can't get rid of that income. I mean, it can be done. It's done all the time, but it's a lot of extra paperwork. I'm trying to cut down on your paperwork. Why waste time and why waste money paying people to do extra paperwork when it wasn't necessary? Another big topic for the tax law that's really coming to a, a head this, at this time of year, in the old days, which is 2017 tax year and before, if you have a divorce situation alimony paid 
to the recipient of the alimony in the old law was its income to the beneficiary and it's a deduction, full deduction to the payer. The reason that's such a good thing is this. Let's let's just pretend we have a let's we have an airline pilot making three hundred thousand and the wife stays at home and doesn't work and they have three children and they get divorced for whatever reason. I won't speculate why the pilot's getting divorced. That's beyond the scope of business buzz to to even know that. Under the old rules, let's say he's required to give the wife uh, $5,000 a month of spousal support. Under the old rules, now child support's not deductible by him, it's not income to the spouse, but spousal support is. Under the old rules, you could wrap up spousal support plus child support, and let's say that's $10,000 a month. You could call that family support in the agreement. The entire $120,000 per year would be deductible by the pilot, but it would be income to the spouse who's raising the kids and not working. Now, you might say, that's not fair. The pilot is getting all this tax break, and the other one's having to pay some tax. Well, it is fair because of this. If the pilot makes $300,000 a year, he's in a super high tax bracket. So let's call that 36% just to have a number. Plus, let's say 9% state. So let's say 45%. That $120,000 when the spouse has to list it as income is not going to be in the super high brackets. It's going to be maybe in the 15. The new brackets are 12 and 22. So let's call her bracket 20% with state and federal combined. So 120000 deducted against a 45% bracket versus 120000 listed as income in a 20% bracket will save, if you call it a family unit, even though they're divorced, if you look at it as a family unit, the family unit just legally saved $30,000, which is one-fourth. That's a difference of the 45% husband's bracket, the 20% wife's bracket, and 120000 that got shifted around. If you see where I'm going with this, that family unit, if you can still call it that after the divorce, saved $30,000 legally. That's the kind of thing a professional tax repair and a good divorce lawyer can help you with. This is Harold Littlejohn, CPA. I'll be right back after the other little break here on Business Buzz. See you soon. Hi, this is Annie Meadows. And I hope you will listen to my program, The Journey, airing weekly on this station. For program scheduling, please visit www.chicochristianradio.com. The Journey with Annie Meadows, Saturday and Sunday at 1230, here on KKXX. Won't you join the adventure? Farmers Insurance, Michael Lambert's agency, would like to remind drivers that according to the U.S. Department of Transportation, texting while driving is a leading cause of traffic accidents and fatalities. So do your part and put the phone down while driving. That message from Farmers Insurance, Michael Lambert's agency, where service is more than a word, it's a fact, backed by the right know-how and experience, proven by customers who wouldn't trust anyone but Michael Lambert's and Farmers Insurance on 7786 State Highway 99E in Los Molinos. Call them at 530-384-2840. 
Hi, this is Rob Walter, host of Red Sky Radio with Rob Walter. This is a program that proclaims liberty to the captives of our beloved nation, where truth trumps political correctness and where the uncompromised word of God exposes the works of darkness and sets free those held hostage behind the iron curtain of a shamelessly biased media. America, we have a trail to blaze. It's time to saddle up. It's time to ride. Join me at 7 a.m. on KKXX. Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. here on KKXX. Welcome back to Business Buzz. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. I hope you were able to follow that. I try not to keep anything real complicated on Business Buzz. The math is not super difficult. It's just percentages and multiplication. But what my point of that was that under the old normal law that we've been used to for decades and decades, the payer of alimony gets to deduct it. And if you wrap alimony plus child support into a lump called family support, that becomes the entire thing becomes deductible. And the person receiving the alimony or family support lists it as income, but many times there's a big disparity between tax brackets for the payer and the payee, and that's where this huge tax savings comes in. I've helped families in the past. My my biggest regret is that a lot of times they'll go to the attorneys and do their divorce without consulting me first, when they come in to do their tax, I'll read their divorce agreement and they won't have lumped alimony plus child support into what's called family support. So the plan goes awry and they don't get the tax savings they could have gotten. And that's usually because they didn't, they didn't consult with enough people prior. And some of the attorneys are real good and they know all about it. Some aren't as good and they don't know about it. So they, I see, I mean, I won't call that a mistake. It's not a legal mistake, but it is a, uh, I guess it's an MTSO, a missed tax saving opportunity. I think I'll patent that acronym. Okay. Moving along, as you know, one of my favorite topics is the company called Tesla. And every week that I do a show and I talk about Tesla, I tell myself, Harold, you're not going to mention Tesla next time. People are going to get bored. They think it's silly. Who cares? They're not driving a Tesla. I want to remind you that my premise on Business Buzz is to be the second opinion for you and to keep you posted on possible problems that you might have. You may own Tesla in your retirement account or in your stock account that your broker manages and you don't even know it. In my opinion, this is a company that could theoretically go to zero stock price-wise, not financial advice, entertainment advice. I'm trying to entertain you. But I do love to share these articles. Now, I found out something new in this article. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to kind of summarize for you because I read this one. I couldn't put it down, basically. It's from my favorite news source during the day. It's called zerohedge.com, Z-E-R-O-H-E-D-G-E. And the title of this article is Utah Autopilot Crash Driver Suing Tesla Claims Brakes Did Not Work. 
And it goes on to say a Tesla driver in Utah whose vehicle slammed himself into a stopped fire truck at a red light is now suing the company, claiming that when she bought the car, she was told it would stop on its own if the autopilot was on and something was in the vehicle's path. She was told in 2016 when she purchased her Tesla Model S that she only had to touch the steering wheel occasionally while using autopilot mode. She also claims that she tried to engage the brakes when she saw the vehicle stopped ahead of her, but the car's brakes simply did not work. And one of the things I thought was interesting is, well, at least the fire department was on hand at the scene of the accident, right? Now, the problem is this, this autopilot, you're still supposed to keep your hands on the wheel, I guess. But what my problem with this whole thing is, and I didn't know this before, is that there are cars that'll stop automatically when something's in front of the car. And what I'm finding out while I'm reading these articles is that the cars who have that, like I think Mercedes has some like that, it's not cheap to do because it actually uses radar. So in the in the cars that have automatic braking, it's actually radar that sees a physical object in front of the car and hits the brakes. In the Tesla auto braking thing, it sounds like that is based on a video, whether it sees something or not. And theoretically, a shadow in the video could look like an object and it could cause braking for no reason. I was shocked when I heard that. I'm just amazed at how many articles are coming out about this, this car called Tesla and um, I just couldn't, I couldn't resist. I, I know I, I know I, I, be, I guess Tesla's a dead horse and I'm beating it, but I shouldn't beat a dead horse. But I just couldn't help myself. Now this other article I want to touch on real quick, because this is California news. We're spreading out. Now we're in the, we're in the East Bay down in Fremont at the Tesla factory. I've got another article And it's called, I got to bring this one up. I didn't print it. Is Tesla manipulating the registration of vehicle identification numbers? And uh, it sounds like there's weird VIN numbers. Each car has a VIN number. And uh, these guys are writing things like um, the... Model 3 Tracker, popularized by this web place, uses VINs spotted in the wild to estimate production rates. Tesla knows this. To date, there are approximately 35,000 more VINs registered than cumulative production, or about 10 weeks supply. So what they're saying is that Tesla may be registering VIN numbers so that it looks like they've produced so many more thousands of cars than they've actually produced. So I thought that was interesting. And uh, I'm not aware of the whole VIN number registration system. I'm not a car manufacturer, not a car dealer. But I thought that was interesting that there could even be some shenanigans going on. Could be. It's alleged. I'm not, not accusing anyone of anything. Not financial advice. But it seems like there may be some funny business going on with Tesla's VIN number registrations, making it look like they've produced tens of thousands of cars per month when they've actually produced a lot less. That's my guess.
moving along, we're spreading out. We were just in the Fremont tent that produces Teslas. Now we are, and if you've been listening to Business Buzz, you understand the whole tent reference. Now we're moving out. Actually, we're moving back in time, and we're moving east. Where are we going today in the Wayback Machine? Well, guess what? We're going to New York City, and we're going to the World Trade Center. And I've got an article called Investigators Shock 9-11 Claim. Gold Vault's contents emptied before attack. They knew it was going to happen. Unknown to most people at the time, $650 million in gold and silver was being kept in a special vault four floors beneath four World Trade Center. And this is from Max Slavo of the SHTF plan. And if you don't know what SHTF stands for, I'm not going to tell you over the, over the air. I'll just let you look it up. His website's called the SHTF plan. So I'm just going to read some of this, then we're going to discuss it a little bit. The attackers of September 11, 2001 will forever be mired in doubt and suspicion by millions of people who saw the events live on their televisions. Almost immediately following the attacks, theories began to emerge. Were the hijackers operative for a Western intelligence service? How did a passport from one of the terrorists survive completely unscathed, only to be found later amidst the rubble of the trade centers? How did World Trade Center Building 7 collapse even though it was never struck by an airplane? Why was President George H.W. Bush, that's Daddy Bush, meeting with members of the Bin Laden family at the very moment of the attacks? Were the planes that hit the buildings actually commercial airliners or were they remotely operated drones? Why was the entirety, the entirety of Ground Zero quickly sanitized and shipped to China for recycling before any investigation ever took place? And what are the odds that on the very day terrorists used planes to attack the Pentagon and World Trade Centers, the U.S. military was holding exercises simulating hijackers crashing planes into buildings? Well, I guarantee you will be back after this bottom-of-the-hour break because with that kind of lead-in, you cannot resist this next story about precious metals. I'll be right back on Business Buzz. Stay tuned. I'm Scott Allred. I'm Ben Taney. And I'm Matt Four. This is Jessica Wilkerson, one of your hosts of Chico Now. A half hour designed for the community and brought to you by the community. Each day, one of our hosts will join with people from organizations throughout the greater Chico area. We want to let you know what's happening in Chico Now. So join us at 1230 Monday through Friday here on KKXX for Chico Now. Here's Rick Box, founder of Unconventional Business Network, with today's Integrity Moment. A frustration I had working in large corporations was when I knew the solution to a situation, but was told, that's not how we do it. I despised hearing, that's the way we've always done it. Occasionally, my superiors had good reasons, but frequently, my unconventional methods would have proven more fruitful. In Matthew 8, one of Jesus' disciples wanted to adhere to the Jewish custom of burying his father before following Jesus. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. 
Jesus knew his unconventional path for this disciple of seeking and saving the lost would be much more fruitful than burying a spiritually dead father. In business, we ought to be more interested in God's unconventional path than our own fruitless customs. To learn more about Unconventional Business Network and doing business God's way, visit unconventionalbusiness.org. That's unconventionalbusiness.org. When we air a program, first the sound reaches the 35 major and minor parts of the human ear. Then the message travels out from the ear across millions of auditory nerves. From there it reaches about 10 billion neurons in your brain. Finally, the message and the teaching reaches your soul. Right here you'll find speakers and teachers that go way beyond just being educational or entertaining. Because you are more than just flesh and bone and nerves and neurons. We air programs that reach the soul. You are locked into live radio, KKXX, AM and FM. Welcome back to Business Buzz. This is Harold Littlejohn, CPA. As you know, on Business Buzz, one of my favorite topics is precious metals. So I enticed you with the little lead up to the 9-11, so I'm just going to read a little more. Stay with me. This gets really interesting. These questions and thousands more have been the subject of fervent debate for over a decade and like the Kennedy assassination, may never have an official answer. But just as has been the case with the investigation of JFK's murder, new details and evidence continue to emerge surrounding the events of that day. In a shocking report published by The Sun, which I think is a British paper, former FEMA employee Kurt Sonnenfeld says he has evidence proving that certain insiders were privy to the attacks, perhaps even including President George W. Bush. Kurt Sonnenfeld was working for the U.S. FEMA, Federal Emergency Management Agency, an organization tied to the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, when the terrorist attack on the World Trade Center took place. After the planes crashed into the building, Kurt was given unrestricted access to Ground Zero, the site where the buildings once stood. Armed with camera gear, the 39-year-old was asked to film everything he saw. His documented evidence was supposed to form part of a report about what happened, but he never handed back the footage. He says they want to silence him over what he saw beneath World Trade Center 6, evidence he is convinced paints the Bush administration as big players in the deadliest attack on American soil. Sporting bleach blonde hair, Kurt wove his way through the rubble of Manhattan's downtown financial district. He shot hours of footage but never handed it in. Of particular interest was what he found beneath World Trade Center 6. He says inside the building he came across a vault that had been cleared of its contents before the plane struck. In a documentary filmed in Argentina, Kurt said the discovery is proof that America knew the attacks were coming at the very least. Quote, one thing I'm certain of is that agencies of intelligence of the United States of America knew that what was going to happen and at least let it happen, he said. Not only did they know it was going to happen, but they in fact collaborated. It is given weight by a similar discovery on a basement door below World Trade Center 4. According to a New York Times article, the door to a vault was still intact, but it appeared as if somebody had tried to gain entry. Behind the vault door were nearly a 1,000 tons of silver and gold. According to 9-11 research, the vault under WTC4 was reportedly owned by COMEX, which is Commodity Exchange. Reports describing the contents of the vaults before the attack suggest that nearly $1 billion in precious metals was stored in the vaults. I want to add right here that that's $1 billion in 
2001 prices. The prices now are probably about three to four times higher than they were then. A figure of $650 million in a national real estate investor article published after the attack is apparently based on pre-attack reports. Unknown to most people at the time, $650 million in gold and silver was being kept in a special vault four floors beneath four World Trade Center. An article in the Times Online gives the following rundown of precious metals that were being stored in the vault belonging to Comex. 3,800 gold bars weighing 12 tons and worth more than $100 million. 800,000 ounces of gold with a value of about $220 million. 102 million ounces of silver worth $430 million. And Bank of Nova Scotia had $200 million of gold. Well, you can multiply that by four now with current prices. So we're looking at about a billion. So we're looking at about $4 billion. I'm going to read the rest of this, some more of this article. It is of note to mention that Sonnenfeld's wife died under mysterious circumstances shortly after he carried out his investigation. The cause of death, a bullet to the back of the head. Sonnenfeld was charged with the murder, but those charges were eventually dropped, at which point he fled to Argentina. He has since remained, he has since remarried and had two children. The U.S. Department of Justice is now attempting to extradite Sonnenfeld back to the United States. Uh, I think this may be an older article, I'm not sure, where he is once again being charged with his wife's murder. Sonnenfeld says that the reasons behind the U.S. government's push to bring him back to America are more nefarious than they are letting on, alluding to his intimate knowledge of the 9-11 Ground Zero crime scene as a potential reason for taking him into custody. We know for a fact that gold was being stored under Trade Center 4. Perhaps similar riches were being stored under Trade Center 6. That the vault was completely empty when Sonnenfeld carried out his investigation certainly suggests foreknowledge by highly placed insiders. So that adds to the mystery because there's so many questions about 9-11 and this being a business show, I'm not going to get into my personal conspiracy theories about all this stuff. But on the business side of it, I like to talk about precious metals and it makes me wonder if precious metals are something that nobody should bother to have because they're uh, useless relics, like Ben Bernanke said uh, in his testimony to Congress. I can't remember his name. It was something like worthless relic. If that's the case, why do so many people seem to want to hold on to it, and why do so many people want to steal it and control it? So that was just my take on the on the story about the precious metals that might have been underneath the World Trade Center on 9-11, and one of the vaults was empty when this man went and filmed it, What's interesting is I'm wondering if he's released that film for anybody to see because I have never seen a film like that. And if he's if he didn't turn the film into his employers, where's the film and what does it show and can we see it somewhere? That would be really interesting. Uh, I would say somebody get the popcorn if I can go if I can watch one like that. That sounds like fun. Okay, we had a little bit of local. We touched on the local. We talked about the state. We've done a little national. Now we're going worldwide. I read a book 30 years ago that I enjoyed so much that I still read it, and I brought a little bit of it with you today just so I can talk about another business, uh, since this is business buzz. And this would be the business of the drug business. I'm anti-drug. I hope 
people don't use drugs. I know part of the problem these days is prescription drugs are almost, I think, just as much a cause of overdoses as illegal drugs anymore. In the old days, it was the illegal drugs that were killing people. Now, I believe the big opioid crisis is probably related to prescription drugs. I'm not a drug expert, not a doctor. Don't play one on television, and this is not financial advice. I'm just trying to entertain with a little bit of a book that I read in the late 80s. It came out in the mid-80s. It's still one of my favorite books of all time. The name of the book is Dope Incorporated, and it's written by what's called the Executive Intelligence Review. It's part of the Lyndon LaRouche group, and it's a they're a political, they call it a PAC, Political Action Committee, LaRouche PAC. And uh, this book was my first exposure to the LaRouche organization. In fact, I wear as a badge of honor when I was a teenager and I was so into sharing all these stories that I've been reading with other people who had never read anything about it or like it. My dad, who was an accountant, one of his friends nicknamed me Lyndon. He called me Lyndon LaRouche. And I took that as a compliment. Okay, so I'm just going to read part of this chapter from Dope Incorporated. And this chapter one is called Banking and the World's Biggest Business. Assembled as one picture, the hard evidence available from the Drug Enforcement Administration and other law enforcement bodies leaves only one possible conclusion. The drug industry is run as a single integrated world operation from the opium poppy to the nickel bag of heroin sold on an inner city street corner. Not only is illegal drug traffic under the control of a single world network, but opiates traffic in particular is without doubt the best controlled production and distribution system of any commodity in international trade, illegal or legal. The beer's central selling organization's 85% control of world diamond wholesaling, an example not irrelevant to the drug trade, pales by comparison to the orderly marketing arrangements for heroin demonstrated by the hardest figures available. Investigators are daunted by the fact that the solution to the problem is so obvious. Imagine Edgar Allan Poe's fictional purloined letter, photographically enlarged to 8 by 20 feet and used as wallpaper. Then imagine the French police attempting to find it with magnifying glasses. When we speak of the drug-related illegal economy for drugs are the pivot on which most other illegal activity turns, we are talking of a $200 billion per year business, the biggest business in the world, that is net, not gross, annual sale of drugs, plus related illicit payments. Now remember, I'll interject here, this book was written in the 80s, so $200 billion in the 80s is probably a trillion now, but don't quote me on that, I'm just speculating. Okay, I'm going to continue a little more. How can such activity avoid sticking out wildly, especially in areas of concentration such as the Far East? Because the British monarchy organized most of the Far East to conform to the drug traffic. How can $200 billion in illegal payments get through the international banking system past the eyes of law enforcement authorities? The answer is the Anglo-Dutch offshore banking system. This and related precious metals and gems trade were designed around illegal money in the first place. More consideration of the obvious, or what will quickly become obvious when the evidence of the public record is assembled below, gives the financial specialist the equivalent of an inner ear disorder. That means you're going to be falling down confusion. Confusion. 
The financial world, remember, is one in which the stock market will do flips over a measly few hundred million dollars difference in the weekly reported figures for the American money supply. Although most of the necessary evidence has long been available, both investigators and the public prefer to see world drug traffic and related illegal activity as a montage of movie villains, Far Eastern warlords, freelance smugglers, jowly gangsters, and corrupt politicians. Such individuals figure into the world drug traffic, but as the arms and legs of a top-down operation under the immediate control of the British and allied monarchies. Well, we're coming up on that final break. I'll be back in a minute. Stay tuned. We got more about the business of drugs, and we're going to have some more fun with the business of the universe. Stay tuned. From the Pacific Justice Institute, this is The Legal Edge, defending your rights as a Christian, a parent, and a citizen. Here's Brad Dacus. A small church group has been meeting for about 20 years in its mobile home community clubhouse. One disgruntled resident of the San Luis Obispo, California park recently demanded that the church meetings be stopped. This resident claimed to be part of the Satanic Temple, whose main purpose seems to be only to antagonize people of faith. Well, after the management caved to the demands, the pastor of the church group contacted Pacific Justice Institute. After a legal demand letter from PJI and conversations with attorneys, the management reinstated the church meetings. Another victory for religious liberty. The Pacific Justice Institute provides legal representation to individuals without charge. Learn more at pacificjustice.org. That's pacificjustice.org. 180 over 111, and I had a stroke. I couldn't speak or walk. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke. This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a stroke are far from silent. Get back on your treatment plan or talk with your doctor to create a plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhpp.org. Head to toe, everything's changed. Brought to you by the American Stroke Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Business Buzz. Harold Littlejohn, CPA, here for the final quarter hour. I'm glad you're still with me. I'm having fun talking about the business of the drug business on Business Buzz. There is so much in this book is like, it's like reading an Encyclopedia Britannica. It's just fact after fact after fact. And obviously when you're, when you're, when you're insinuating that governments and real people are running the drug trade worldwide, you obviously have to do a lot of good fact checking because they could bring you down in an instant with a libel and slander suit if you weren't telling the truth. So that's why I'm usually convinced that these when books go this far to slander people, it's probably true because if it wasn't, they'd be sued out of business very quickly. Now, the next part of this chapter, it mentions how it's it's amazing that the uniformity of the price of heroin. Now, this is in the 80s. It's the uniformity of the price of heroin in all the major cities of the U.S. 
it basically was within two to six percent uh, of each other's price all over the country, which is only possible if there was an organized business supplying the supply. So it goes on to uh, to talk about. Uh, I, I there's so much. Like I say, there's so much in this book. I, I can't go word for word. I'm just trying to give you a good idea. Um, the law enforcement record shows that Dope Incorporated, and that's what he calls the world's drug business, does its best to avoid mishaps through careful research on the streets of American cities, which is transmitted back to the poppy fields. Mio tribesmen in the Burmese or Yunnan province mountain foothills do not plant what they feel like, but what they are told to plant. This facet of the production cycle is well known by law enforcement investigators. If for some reason the market research is off, chaos will ensue, as it did in 1972 when the Golden Triangle yielded a bumper harvest after wholesalers told poppy-growing peasants to increase their acreage by 50 to 100%. The wholesalers counted on the continuing exponential expansion of heroin consumption among American soldiers in Vietnam. Nixon pulled the rug out from under them by pulling the troops out, leaving the world heroin market in an unprecedented state of oversupply. Reckless price cutting and competition for sales outlets in this case might have provoked serious consequences for Dope Incorporated were it not for, quote, government in regulatory intervention. The Thai government stepped in and sold 22 tons of opium to the United States. The opium was burned in a public ceremony attended by giggling Thai officials, thus restoring equilibrium to the market. In any case, the Thais were only repeating the action of the Imperial Chinese in 1839, who purchased and burned more than 3,000 tons of opium to the great relief of oversupplied British traders who sent special fleets to India to bring additional, additional opium back to get the imperial government's attractive price. Once world illegal opiates traffic comes under scrutiny as an integrated centralized monopoly, the discrepancy between the huge oversupply and relatively restricted demand presents no further difficulties. We are looking at an industry based on the same principles as the world diamond cartel controlled by De Beers or the so-called club among leading pharmaceutical manufacturers. Diamond production capacity is so large relative to the absorption capacity of the world market that De Beers' central selling organization running 85% of world diamond wholesale trade limits availability in order to obtain essentially the price at once. So if you understand what he's saying there, they're saying that when you control the supply like De Beers controls the diamond supply, there's so many diamonds in vaults, they just let out enough to keep the price up to the level they want the price to be at. If they were to sell all of their oversupply of diamonds in their vaults, the price of diamonds would plummet. That's one of the reasons why, just as an aside here, as far as uh, business buzz, I never promote purchase of diamonds And the reason is the supply of diamonds is so big, but since it's controlled by one family business, it's manipulated to where the supply is released slowly and diamonds maintain a fairly high price. The problem is if they ever decide to lower the price of diamonds, they can let out that gigantic oversupply of diamonds that's in vaults and the price of the diamonds would be way, way down. I never recommend diamonds as an investment. I think diamonds are cool. They're cool because they're very small. They can't be detected by a metal detector. And if you did need to 
take some wealth somewhere in your pocket, the perfect method would be with diamonds. And I'm sure a lot of criminals do that. But they don't, uh, they don't set off metal detectors and they're so small. I mean, even a million-dollar diamond would, you know, easily fit in the palm of your hand. So I'm just going to read a little bit more here. Uh, how big an industry? Heroin trade is the ideal commodity cartel. Its price is more reliably controlled than that of crude oil, and its world volume of sales at roughly $25 billion for heroin alone and considerably more for smoking opium and other derivatives is substantially higher than that of most of the commodities uh, a couple of comparisons are in order. At the recent world gold price of 220 per, 225 per troy ounce, annual world, world gold mining production yields less than $7 billion. During 1977, after an unprecedented price run-up, world diamond output, w- output was under $5 billion. Allowing for the relative ease with which, with which a large dollar value of heroin may be transported... The drug is worth at street level 366 times its weight in gold. The worth of the drug trade is still boggling. It is even more boggling when the retail value in the United States and other countries of non-opiate illegal drugs comes into the picture. For example, the Columbia marijuana crop, officially estimated for this year alone, carries a retail value of $40 billion. Since marijuana is so widespread... Marijuana smoking is so widespread, there probably exists a much larger market in dollar terms than the relatively restricted market among heroin addicts. So anyway, I'm not going to go too much more further into this, but I am absolutely shocked when I read this book because I read it 30 years ago. It stayed with me a long time. I enjoy it. It's got fact after fact after fact. I even came across the name in this book, of the law firm my wife used to work at before we were married. And it turns out this law firm she worked at that was headquartered in Paris, but had offices in New York and San Francisco and probably a lot more. They get mentioned in this book, Dope Incorporated as a major drug, uh, drug protecting uh, money laundering law firm, which shocked me because I mean, I never, the, the local office that I was familiar with seemed like a pretty good place with a lot of nice people, but one never knows. It's a great book. It even talks about Macy's. It talks about the uh, store Macy's being more of a bank than a retailer. And uh, it also gets into the fact that Macy's has a lot to do with, and this is back in the 80s, it has a lot to do with the New York pornography industry, which I'm sure is a lot different now with the internet around, but that is my world news for today. I, I hope you enjoyed that. It's a if you ever get a chance to you can you can go online. I the place to go is called archives.org. You type in Dope Incorporated. And then one of the choices for the printout is like PDF type or something. And uh, you just uh, you can read the whole book right there on your computer. Or you can print it out if you want. I just print it out like 10 pages because I was interested in sharing that with you. But that's one of my favorite books. If I had a favorite book list, uh, Dope Incorporated would definitely be, it would definitely be in the top five. There's no question that it makes for very interesting reading. I've only got a few minutes left. I'm always drawn to kind of like 
the last few minutes of the day, when you're if you're laying in bed and not asleep yet, I find that that's my favorite time to just totally relax and really try to think about nothing. If you're thinking about God or Jesus or things like that, it's usually a pretty good time to do it when you're laying in bed drifting off to sleep. So I kind of like the idea of just totally relaxing toward the end of the day. So here at the end of the hour, I'm just going to read a little bit from my real favorite book, which is called A Course in Miracles, and it's from Chapter 7. It's uh, Part 8 of Chapter 7. It's called The Unbelievable Belief, and if you've listened to Business Buzz before, you've kind of heard the overview of Course in Miracles. Keep in mind that what the Course in Miracles is trying to, the goal of the course is peace of mind. The main theory of the course is that we have two minds. One is our ego mind, where we're thinking all the time and running around thinking the world is real. And the other mind is the right mind that steps back from that ego mind and tries to be quiet and tries to not think at all. Or tries to at least just observe the thoughts of the ego mind. So I'm just going to read this little section called The Unbelievable Belief. We have said that without projection there can be no anger, but it is also true that without extension there can be no love. These reflect a fundamental law of the mind and therefore one that always operates. It is the law by which you create and were created. It is the the law that unifies the kingdom and keeps it in the mind of God. To the ego, the law is perceived as a means of getting rid of something it does not want. To the Holy Spirit, it is the fundamental law of sharing by which you give what you value in order to keep it in your mind. To the Holy Spirit, it is the law of extension. To the ego, it is the law of deprivation. It therefore produces abundance or scarcity depending on how you choose to apply it. This choice is up to you, but it is not up to you to decide whether or not you will utilize the law. Every mind must project or extend because that is how it lives and every mind is life. The ego's use of projection must be fully understood before the inevitable association between projection and anger can be finally undone. The ego always tries to preserve conflict. It is very ingenious in devising ways that seem to diminish conflict because it, is not want, it does not want you to find conflict so intolerable that you will insist on giving it up. The ego therefore tries to persuade you that it can free you of conflict lest you give the ego up and free yourself. Using its own warped version of the laws of God, the ego utilizes the power of the mind only to defeat the mind's real purpose. It projects conflict from your mind to other minds in an attempt to persuade you that you have gotten rid of the problem. Now I'll reiterate here, The whole idea of forgiveness in the course is that you look around you every day and your ego blames everyone else for your perceived problems. When what this book is saying is that in reality, there are no problems because you are projecting this anger onto other people when you should be just forgiving them because they're not even aware of what the truth really is. There are two major errors involved in this attempt. First, strictly speaking, conflict cannot be projected because it cannot be shared. Any attempt to keep part of it and get rid of another part does not really mean anything. Remember that a conflicted teacher is a poor teacher and a poor learner. His lessons are confused 
his lessons are confused and their transfer value is limited by his confusion. The second error is the idea that you can get rid of something you do not want by giving it away. Giving it is how you keep it. The belief that by seeing it outside you, you have excluded it from within is a complete distortion of the power of extension. That is why those who protect are vigilant for their own safety. They are afraid that their projections will return and hurt them. Believing they have blotted their projections from their own minds, they also believe their projections are trying to creep back in. Since the projections have not left their minds, they are forced to engage in constant activity in order to not recognize this. Dang, I ran out of time. Well, that was the start of the section called The Unbelievable Belief. I hope you enjoyed that. I hope it gave you a little bit of peace of mind this afternoon. This is Business Buzz. I'll see you next time.
KKXX, Paradise, K280GL, Chico, and K283AR. It's our from townhall.com. I'm Keith Peters. A key Republican swing vote in the Kavanaugh confirmation proceedings wants to hear more about a 36-year-old allegation of sexual misconduct. Maine Susan Collins. I want to have both individuals come before the 